Hello everyone, welcome to A24 on the Rocks. I will be your host this fine evening, Cole William Whitlaw Gibson. I am drinking a nice bottle of water because I did not plan accordingly and I am traveling for work, so shame Ooh. on me. Up next we got my boy. Hey, what up? It's Blaze Fitzgerald Ryan the first. Um, tonight I am also not drinking alcohol. I have a little tummy issues today, so I'm drinking 7-Eleven Replenish Zero Orange Mango. It's really good for when you fuck up. It doesn't. Next, we're going to kick it over to... My name's Eric, and I'm drinking straight 5 o'clock vodka because I hate myself. Oh, my oh, God. <laughs> Jesus. Just... Oh. Hey, it's me. It's Kelly. I am Eric's perfectly programmed wife, <laughs> and I was also programmed to drink Applejack Brandy on the rocks for this episode. Awesome. Good evening, world. This is uh, Kevin K. Konkonachek, and tonight I am drinking Yellowstone Select Bourbon Whiskey, 93% oh, proof, not really percent proof, delicious bourbon, as usual. And tonight we have a guest joining us. Yeah, and I am your special guest. Uh, my name is Kurt. I am drinking a Beer Mosa with Miller High Life for when you're out of champagne, but you do have the champagne of beers. Beautiful. Just Beautiful. beautiful. Very good. Tonight we will be discussing one of the most popular and well-known films in the A24 catalog, and one that uh, I think we were all anticipating waiting to get to, Ex Machina. Uh, this film is uh, based around a young programmer who is selected to uh, participate in a groundbreaking experiment in synthetic intelligence by evaluating the human qualities of this advanced humanoid AI. Um, this is Alex Garland's uh, directorial debut. It features Oscar Isaac back in the A24 yet again with uh, my man Gleason Naka Domhall. Domhall? Domhall. Not sure. Yeah. Uh, and they're uh, back at it. They'll meet up later when they watch some Star Wars. Starting this off, not necessarily, we could do a vibe check, but I'm more interested in everyone's opinion on the intro and uh, some of the cinematography just the way they set up and started the film uh eric let's start with you on this one buddy um well it starts out with that webcam and like camera point of view with facial recognition so it's like you already at the start kind of know like okay this guy's being watched i i guess this is my third time seeing it so i i think i noticed it the first time but i really noticed it this time like okay this he's working at some tech company and Blue Book, which is the actual company, kind of mirrors Google, it's supposed to show like, oh yeah, they're totally like watching everything you type in and they're watching you at all times. How about you, uh, guest, honorable guest, Kurt Fackness? Yeah, the first thing that struck me, this was the second time that I had watched it. And the first person that you see in the film is like behind a big like gaming chair and their face is obscured and you just see them and, and their phone. And then you get the shot from the perspective of the computer, like the face ID going on. And then the first like face you see outside of Caleb is someone who's on their phone. And so like the focus of the film is very clear right away. And I did really like, like that, right? It's kind of focused on the technology and we see that later with Ava. 
Uh, so I thought it was really interesting. It was it had a like Black Mirror before Black Mirror vibe, right? And so I think it was 2014 this film came out, and so I think uh, you know it still held up. It didn't overdo it. Uh, it was kind of quick, and then got right to it, and I appreciated that too. Is this was this the first viewing of any of us, or have we all seen this movie prior? First time for me, actually. Oh, Ooh. Kevin, you're a newbie. So what did you think, Kevin, about the intro then? Um, I really enjoyed that it told the viewer um, kind of the setting and the story without using any words. We kind of got the right away vibe that there was a big contest going on and that whenever he won it and everybody reacted the way they did, you could tell there was just some import to it or that everybody knew kind of what was happening. Um, and then I really enjoyed the second scene that we got to there, and we'll sure we'll get to it in the helicopter. Um, and the same thing, right, where it's very minimal dialogue, but it completely conveys the idea of incredibly rich, wealthy individual who owns this massive tract of land. I mean, he asks how long until we get to the estate, and the pilot replies with, we've been flying over his estate for the last two hours. And that's all you get in that moment, but it really sets up kind of the, the mystery of our main character, Nathan, and kind of the rest of his obvious wealth and influence. So I really enjoyed the front of the movie and it got me interested right off the bat. Moving along, like once, uh, once our character finds out, you know, makes his way to the kind of compound and gets inside and they start um, really diving into the, you know, the meat and potatoes of this movie. Uh, One thing that I noticed and I thought was a pretty interesting and cool take was kind of the dichotomy between they kept, showing the outside world and then the inside world and his compound was very kind of bleak and boring versus you know the the outside of it and um, i want to see here kind of more of what kelly's thoughts were on some of the the shots where they you know do the hard cuts between the two and what your feelings were on that yeah i definitely even with the beginning of this movie i just get this huge feeling of loneliness um, just in that our first expressions or emotions that are even communicated to us are people responding to Caleb winning the contest just by texting him about it. And then somebody comes and kind of gives him a hug. That's like the only uh, real embrace that we have. And then, like Kevin said, that immediate skip to kind of this world of absolute isolation and all of this land more than you ever know what to do with and this complete compound in exact contrast to this farm of people that are being having their privacy stripped away completely that is such a immediately good juxtaposition between these like two kind of themes and then in addition to that they juxtapose the difference between machine and nature with going between these cuts of kind of that outside world and they really don't slow well, they don't do it quickly. They give us lots of long takes of the outside world where it's just kind of quiet. And then we jump to the inside. That's kind of quiet too. It's this loneliness that continues. But I think that it's necessary that they establish that because that is a theme that continues and continues throughout the film. That was very well put. Moving into uh, one of the key characters, Oscar Isaac, who I think did a phenomenal job on this role. Blaze, what were your first thoughts when he gets introduced as as, uh, as a character, and what did your uh, first feelings or vibes that he gave off to you? My immediate first vibe off of him was uh, Silicon Bro, Giga Chad. Some of like you know, like I think toxic masculinity <laughs> is a huge theme of this uh, movie, and he immediately comes off like a genius, but a guy that is so 
self-actualization that he's a genius that he actually comes off as like a huge asshole and he's he also seems like going on with the uh theme of isolation he seems like a very lonely person he lives in this compound by himself with you know a bunch of cyborgs basically and no one's allowed on his property the helicopter guy said that he would get shot if he came any further uh, oscar isaac plays uh nathan yeah very very well um in that you know he has a huge god complex when uh, he uh, compares him to God for making the cyborg, and he goes back and says, oh, well, when we do the book or movie or whatever about this, we're going to use that quote about how you called me God. So, you know, he is in right in his own right a God, but like I said, he is very ego-driven, and he um, is very socially awkward as well. Very layered character. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kurt, did you? Uh, what was your first impressions of Mr. Oster Isaac, Nathan? Yeah, I mean, Blaze, you hit it right on. The first thing that I wrote down about uh, Nathan was God complex is apparent right away. I do think he has some humanizing qualities, his drunkenness, and he kind of slips into, in that drunkenness, some like more human moments. And I found that really interesting, but it was very clear, like the isolation and the feeling of uh, being above everything else that was happening around him. That was right on. And Oscar Isaac's performance there was fantastic. I also thought that there was a clear, like, sexual tension and sexual energy throughout the whole movie. And, uh, you know, we get to see Oscar Isaac with his shirt off. You know, even I can appreciate a little bit of that. And and that seemed to be kind of apparent right away, too. But, uh, yeah, definitely the, the God complex and then the isolation with, uh, you know, Caleb asking, uh, oh, must have been a crazy party last night, right? And, and Nathan being like, Par- party? What party? Um, <laughs> you know, kind of dr- dr- drove home the point. There was no subtlety about the the isolation and the God complex in Nathan. Yeah, so once uh, Nathan and Caleb introduce themselves and Caleb signs, you know, the boilerplate NDA, um, we are finally introduced to uh, Ava. And I am interested, Kevin, to get your take on when she is first introduced and kind of the visuals and what you've got felt from that. I really enjoyed that scene in general from start to finish, kind of that idea of anticipation where Caleb finds out that he's about to be this human in this Turing test and being put into that situation. We immediately see Ava's living quarters, and it's this big open area with a big glass backdrop, and you can see see the nature there. And she's you know able to walk around and kind of be in this open area. And then we see um, Caleb's spot, and he's in this tiny little box, and he's having to do this interview from this small, tight area while kind of looking at his subject in this big open space. And I really enjoyed that kind of scene in general and the getting to know you side of it. The visual aspects, um, it's very clear why this film was selected for an Oscar in visual effects, because it really did such a fantastic job of subtly creating this feeling of artificial intelligence or, or mechanical robots while still keeping Alicia Vikander's femininity and just allowing her to be such a great actress in that role. So just great introduction to that character. Awesome for the viewer to kind of get that visual um, juxtaposition of the two places and it was just a good scene yeah and i'm, I'm glad you brought up the academy award because it uh for it only had a budget of 15 million uh but it beat out the revenant mad max fury road the star wars force awakens and all of those had 130 150 and 200 million dollar 
budgets and this little $15 million film exceeded all those expectations. And uh, when I remember when I first watched it, I saw Ava, the, the see-through aspect really kind of just gave her like a weird life, but not life thing. Kelly's got something. Yeah. As a woman. <laughs> yes. I wanted to weigh in on this as well. So I love that she is a beautiful AI. I love that she looks like a woman and Kevin said has femininity to her. And they do it in a way that isn't just pure sexualization without stripping her of sexuality, which I feel like is such a fine line to cross, especially if written, directed by men. But they do it so perfectly. And like I was thinking, like this isn't the first time we've seen something like this. Like Fifth Element kind of does this. Uh, the remake of Ghost in the Shell kind of does that. But that's like very male gazy on the way that these kind of robot or perfectly designed women are this one does it so well and it's not it's believable you know uh i just want to give huge props to that it made it it would be a whole different movie if they designed her differently or there there's a lot of ways this could have gone wrong is what i'm trying to say i think that they did it very right yeah the one thing i was going to say too is with her only having the face and hands so many times in the movie you know you've got these all these fogged uh Um, doors and windows and you see someone just opening the doors with just their hand and I I loved it the whole time don't have much more to say on it than this like you never knew who it was going to be opening whatever uh, door and found that super interesting and the other thing I was going to say too on the like there's so much sexuality and sexual energy in the film going on but also uh, if I remember correctly like Ava and Caleb I don't think ever touch in the entire film and uh despite clearly uh, and we'll get into it later on you know caleb's intentions as you get near the the end of the movie so i found that really interesting too one of the influences i really got from this film when i kind of read online the influences that other people think uh this film was inspired by i read like 2001 a space odyssey her altered state altered states i kind of got frankenstein from this it's like the scientist is in this very isolated layer creating a creature and the scientist definitely has a god complex yeah like the, it's the creature is just much more smart it's definitely i mean a comment on ai becoming even more powerful than humans you know like the way ava mimics emotion and mimics like being interested in uh the things that caleb says or when caleb tells ava that uh his parents died in a car crash ava like seems generally sad and uh there's she mimics the emotion of sadness so well and i i think that you know if these are what ai is going to be like we're all fucked (laughs) um i just figured since we're talking about ava this would be a good time to kind of talk a little bit about her character in general and i was doing a little bit of research with this and it came across a really cool youtube video from the lessons of screenplay youtube page and it talks about how ava truly is the protagonist in this film right she has the strongest desire she wants freedom and has the biggest obstacles to get to that also like doing battle with our main opponent in general i just thought right away from the bat i got a vibe that she was not just a side character or part of this she was kind of the main focus and obviously as we see the entire movie focuses around that including our awesome conclusion but i just really enjoyed how even the initial vibes from that character you could tell that she was the focus of everything 
Yeah, yeah, I was going to mention that uh, too. In that, like, the most relatable character that you meet is Ava, and the one who feels the most human. And in that first interaction, too, Caleb speaks to Ava in this very mechanical, like, I am testing you way. He's the one who sounds like the robot, and Ava is kind of like, oh, this is this is weird, and feels more human. And it really is a trope too of the genre, right? Like the most relatable characters in Blade Runner, like you're you're with Batty the whole time, and that's the replicant. And if you're watching Westworld, you care about Dolores, right? Like that's the whole point. Is like the nature of consciousness piece is kind of not really a part of most of these films and movies because it wouldn't be interesting if the character wasn't a conscious character that you didn't uh, connect with, right? So that's kind of uh, taken as a given. And then uh, you kind of build a more interesting story and connection to the robot or the replicant or the host or whatever it is. And I I just think that this film accomplished it so well right away of like connecting you with Ava um, so much so that, again, totally agree with you that, um, you know, she's the protagonist. Yeah. No, I uh, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and one thing um, that I, I didn't pick up on the first time I watched it, but after the second and third time, you start to, uh, I guess, pick up more on uh, noticing her kind of tells on her ulterior motives and that, you know, some of her disingenuous moments. And Blaze, I'm curious to see if, um, you know, when you first watched this, if you were, you know, realized that she had you know other motives and she was just using Caleb or if she was you thought that she was being truly genuine at first uh yeah I, I mean definitely like you know this is this like a couple others here this is my third time watching it so you definitely pick up on a lot more of just the like her own Turing test um was like felt like more of a manipulation like looking at it this time from uh this light um but the cool thing about it, especially you know going back to what I was watching it the first time it, it was really the coolest, like, because this movie at its heart is a thriller. And that was the whole thing because you are asking yourself about, you know, what her ulterior motives are. What's Nathan's ulterior motives? What's Kayla's ulterior motives? I think, you know, where I called uh, Nathan a, you know, toxic Chad, Caleb isn't exactly perfect either. He seems more like a white knight sort of person. And he really wants to be, you know, her knight in shining armor. Uh, it's funny because his immediate thing when she starts flirting with him is, oh, did you program her like that? Yes, I do think that, like, the little things that she does uh, to manipulate uh, Caleb in this are, it's so minute that you don't even understand it until it's already too late. And then looking back on it again, it's just amazing how, again, I say layers a lot because this movie has a lot of layers to it. So it's, it's, it's the fine details that uh, you really appreciate. Yeah, what about uh, what about you, Kevin, our first-time watcher? So I watched this movie with my wife on Saturday night, and we both enjoyed it. It was both our first time watching it, and so much to the point where I normally take no- notes during these movies while I'm watching it, but this one I didn't want anything to do with notes. I just wanted to be completely immersed in the movie, and that was a really cool feeling for me. But today, uh, I rewatched it again as I was kind of getting ready for this pod, and I made a specific note on the second watch how the effort seemed so much more obvious, and you could see those points where she's meticulously using her robot brain to put in lines like, do you think about me when we're not together? Or do you find me attractive? Or just like all of the things that it, it's clear as day now that she's systematically going through the process of finding ways to get him to fall in love with her eventually to 
to her own means. So I thought it was way cool seeing it the second time through, and you can really see those things come out. But the first time, it's oblivious until the end, and I just think that just means it's a really good movie. I want to. I I, can, I noticed the power structure reverse because uh, the whole time at the start, we kind of think Caleb has power over Ava. You know, he he is talking to her kind of robotically in a way, like just testing her. But then when Ava puts on that dress uh, and looks more human, that is when the power structure completely reverses, and we can tell that Ava has power over Caleb. And then I mean, we figure out later. Nathan um, looked at Caleb's porn search engine history and perfectly uh, modeled this AI to look like people that he looks up on Pornhub, probably. Yeah, it the power structure just completely reverses there. Yep, Pornhub, please sponsor us. Thank you. Uh, I was, not to overstep this real quick, but I agree with the power structure thing was really cool. There was a point where Ava is kind of stalking back and forth on the, on the glass, kind of looking at Caleb after that point, mm-hmm. and it... Um, reminded me of uh, a caged animal in a zoo, like just kind of like back and forth looking at the the, the humans on the other side, just kind of checking out their prey or their, in this circumstance, like the person that she needs to try to win over. Um, I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, she's serving big lioness energy at that (laughs) time. But in addition to that dress moment, that's also when we find out that, I think not long before that, we find out that the software in her is just blue book, the search engine. And all of the data that you can extract from that. That's very real to what real life is like right now and what that's being developed with that kind of information as well. But that's when she reveals that she's a human lie detector. She is able to look at Caleb and likely always has been able to and read his little micro expressions and know exactly what's going on inside. And she can word things in a certain way to get everything that she needs from him. And it's that's amazing puts chills down my spine yeah she asked the question uh are you attracted to me and you can tell mm-hmm. when she says it she's not asking the question because she doesn't know the mm-hmm. answer and wants to know it she knows the answer and then goes into all of the tells the uh uh what was it the like micro expressions that caleb was using and talks about all of them and says it's it's obvious and that kind of harkens back to the opening of the film when you see all the laser lights on Caleb's face from the perspective of the, perspective of the computer, that's exactly what's happening in that moment. Yeah, it's even like kind of priming, and this is a thing for the writers as well that they should get credit on, is like the first thing that she asks him too during that session, I believe, was like, what's your favorite color? So that she can then have a baseline of what happens when he doesn't tell the truth on something that doesn't really matter or does tell the truth on something that doesn't really matter. That's her baseline, and then she's able to experiment off of there. That was a really good addition in there and shows how much work that was put into this movie. Yeah, yeah, the script and everything, everything, like looking uh, like at uh, some of the trivia and the IMDb stuff, I mean, this thing had probably the most I've ever seen of just uh, from the dialogue to the some of the metaphors and the visualization. I mean, everything was so meticulously planned. It, it I mean, you know, I you know, I always pick on you know the prop masters and stuff for stuff not being in place or some things not being uh, proper or right in the real world. But I couldn't find anything wrong with this one, so uh, it's perfect. Go ahead, Kevin. Just because on a side with that too, with kind of the details of the dialogue, the first line that we get Caleb um, asking Ava is, "Do you have a name?" You know, versus "What is your name?" Right. So that's how completely non-human 
that start of that relationship is versus mm-hmm. the way that it goes to the very end, which is just such a 180. It's insane. And I love taking that journey through the movie with our characters, which just makes this even more of an excellent film because you can kind of just see the transformation of somebody who has Blaze described as a beta male to someone who's ready to kind of take control of the situation and go up against a super genius on his own territory. So it was just cool to watch. Yeah, I was going to point out just like this film is actually quite minimal. It really only takes place in a couple uh, rooms and one house, you know, most of the film. Uh, I mean, they do like go up and see a waterfall too. And it, it was shot in Norway and it is completely beautiful. For what a uh, large question the film asks, they accomplish it with um, so little, you know, like they really accomplish the, like answering this large question just in a few rooms. And that is just fit, like amazing job by the director, Alex Garland, who uh, would later go on to direct men. So going back to uh, talking about, uh, you know, are you attracted to the robot? They built it off of his porn history and stuff. Uh, obviously, we're not that far away from sex robots. So my question to you, Blaze, is when the first one comes out, are you in line and would you have sex with the robot? It's a, a simple question. Would I have sex with the robot? Uh, I mean, does the vacuum count? Do you- <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. That's a, I think that's, uh, I think that's a question. very pertinent question, not to me personally, but um, that kind of reminds me of uh, a Futurama episode with the Lucy Lubot, where we could download mm. um, celebrities and stuff like that. So it's... I, I do think of that like I know it's like a joke question, but like in a real practical, like real worldly sense, like if that option was available, I can imagine millions of men just completely going that way. Because if you ever, you know, see internet and incel culture, they blame women for everything. So if they took the humanity out of women and just had a physical form that, you know, couldn't get pregnant and stuff like that. Like, I think a lot of people would do it. That's a real slippery slope. So um, as far as I, I'm in a loving relationship. Uh, we might use, you know, a robot, you know, for that threesome vibe or something like that. Mom, I'm kidding. You. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I do think it's a real thing that could happen within the next 50 years of, you know, people, you know, people today are, you know, we're, all over the country right now, all six of us, and uh, you know, and we're like isolated at the same time. So I feel like we're isolating ourselves more and more, and that's one of the ways you can do it. That is a uh, a very deep answer from you that I was not expecting. So I I was that was very good. I I, I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> wait, it. Wait, what do you think? Blazon isn't a deep and thoughtful person. No, no, I do, but I just I, I mean, know what you're on. saying. I know, I know. My response just would be like, oh yeah, like give me that sex, sex robot. Robots. Let's go to town. Yeah. <laughs> I just think we started with the vacuum comment, and then we ended yeah, up where yeah, we did. Yeah, set the bar pretty low. It, so sure. Yeah. Plus, he's wearing a shirt that says, "Is this your fucking cat?" So I don't, you know, you never know what you're gonna get out of Blaze. So that's why I love. I love my boy. All right. Uh, uh, moving into uh, kind of around that whole porn thing is more of just a, a deep dive into your uh, personal search history and companies using your information and things of that nature to, uh, you know, basically exploit you and what you want. Did you check and, our search uh, history before this podcast? I hope not. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I know what you're into, Kurt. It's okay. Feet is fine. Whatever. Everyone likes something. Feet is fine. Uh, but, Kurt, I want to know what your opinion is on, like, the current, you know, uh, I know there's a big push by Apple and a lot of other people to for your privacy and your search history and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, information is, is you know, money. It's a monetary value. And I'm interested to know what your thoughts or opinions or how things are going in terms of massive companies using your information well yeah it's insane i mean there's so much what tech uh, companies will call anonymized data that isn't anonymous at all right like google has probably like with three points of data can figure out exactly who that data is applied to because uh you know they say oh well you know the location tracking isn't perfect and the data that we save or, and store based on your location isn't perfect well it's like i go to the same three places every day so you fucking know it's me right like and <laughs> there is so much value to those companies in our data. And it's not like we're paid for that data. In fact, we uh, get mined for that data and have to uh, watch advertisements and pay money for all of these services. Um, so, yeah, I think that they're very, I mean, this is a little political, but like very much should be a right to a certain level of privacy and a certain level of control over your data. Now, I'm not going to go crazy about it in that, like, I realize that we are getting something of value from that data too. It's not like uh, I don't go and use Google Maps for my uh, work, for my job every single day, right? And that's updated satellite imagery of the earth that I get to peruse and I get to drop into street view and look at every home that I want to see. And, and uh, you know, I use this for work looking at like street design and, and what's happened over the past 10 years in the street. So like there's a, there's a balance to it, but I feel like where it is now there's so much more power in the tech company that controls and distributes your data and makes money off of your data and all of our data collectively um, that it's it's pretty uh, you know insane and something that uh, the, the balance is off there. So I think there is a, a really good reason for the push for protecting more, our privacy, our data, all of those things, while still giving us all the access to the technology we we know and love. I found it very interesting that uh, our writer and director, Alex Garland, has kind of described this future presented in this film as basically 10 minutes from now, right? So if somebody like Google or Apple decided that tomorrow they made Ava, I wouldn't bat an eye. I wouldn't be surprised. It <laughs> would just be kind of, uh, oh, so that's what you've been working on. Um, I think that we see that. They've already made it. Right, her, exactly. Sure. I mean, we, we, see, <laughs> we see it every day. And with new questions about Amazon getting bigger and bigger and acquiring things like the Roomba and the Rings and all of that stuff, like reality is we don't know what's happening with a lot of this data. And yeah, you can think that it's a conspiracy theory in a lot of these circumstances, but there's some very real fears that are, uh, you know, probably realistic that we should take away from this film. Okay, so this is why I love this podcast because I always get these like crazy theories, like when someone brings something up, and it's like, so get this, so. This Ava, she was the entirety of the data of the entire Blue Book. And what does data do? It manipulates you into, like, buying stuff, right? Like, if you, like, type in lamps, then the next mm -hmm. 50 advertisements are going to be lamps. So Caleb was outdone by his own, like, data, by his own humanity. Is that the thing? Like, data is going to manipulate us into everything. That's insane. I didn't oh, yeah. know that. <laughs> perfect time for me to make the point I wanted to. All of these social media companies, Google, Kurt, you made a good point about 
it's not like we aren't getting value from it. In fact, many of us are reliant on it a lot for our jobs and daily life. All of these things are quote unquote free for us. And that's because it's, that's not the product. It's the people using it that are the product. And for now, the consumer is advertisers just competing for your eyes and competing for your clicks. But I think it's pretty naive to think that that's all that that data is ever used for. That's that's my conspiracy theory, which I don't even think is. I think it's pretty obvious totally. that <laughs> there's a lot more going on, and they're it's no, they're not at liberty to let us know what any of it is. When Mark Zuckerberg's in front of Congress, there's very prepared points that he's going to touch, because not everyone, not even the general consumer, and a lot of even the young people that are so used to devices today are knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. It's a little bit concerning, and I think that the cart is going too fast to stop it at this point bring back to ex machina uh he, caleb says like you know all manufacturers knew he was spying on everyone uh but they couldn't say he was doing it without admitting that they were doing it themselves and that was perfect because uh edward snowden you know he kind of blew the top off all uh data mining and everything and well the government doing it but also like it showed that all these cell phone companies were spying on people technically uh to you know, better sell them things, you know, and that's really to these people, people like Nathan, we're just a bunch of data points, you know, uh, they uh, were data points to make them more money, you know, and what the, the other great quote that Nathan says is uh, search engines weren't a map of what people were thinking, but how people were thinking impulse response, predicting people, you know, and that's really how they're using our information for sure. And it's it's to better sell us stuff. Uh, it's, I mean, in some cases we know, like with the Patriot Act, they've been spying on people that they think are terrorists. It's quite scary. It needs to be regulated. This is where I wish uh, Ralph Nader was still big, because uh, we need kind of a consumerism movement and uh, regulation around it for sure. Other than Andrew Yang, who has fallen from grace. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, moving into so obviously uh, Nathan abuses and uses everyone's data and then i think with that knowledge he understands that his solitude keeps him away from all of that and he clearly has set up this you know compound in the middle of nowhere he has very little of a, a footprint and i mean even caleb didn't even know what he looked like until he showed up and and, and saw him uh and one line or when they were when caleb and nathan were having dinner together and they were talking about the generator power outages and stuff like that nathan made a comment saying that uh you know he couldn't get the people who installed the generator and set up the system uh to come fix it because he had them killed and i was waiting for the punchline <laughs> of you know him to just say just kidding or like smile never happened. Or does not right? laugh yeah, <laughs> never happened it's just awkward silence and they just sit there and just like sipping their wine oh yeah those dudes are dead for sure yeah <laughs> my, my question so funny. is does anyone think that they're actually still alive or did he just straight up kill all of these generator installers yes i think he did because there's other times where he seems to be sarcastic but this time he was just deadpan just yeah had him killed anyone no i mean, i don't think it affects the movie a ton um but yeah, yeah. I, I think it you know you can believe what you want i i'm gonna choose to believe that he had all these people killed. yeah absolutely uh, yeah. i'm with you eric yeah, on that same. one i was waiting for the punchline too but i was like yeah, i can believe it sure we'll go with it 
All right. Which is probably uh, what Caleb was thinking too. Like, are you kidding? I believe it that you probably did this, which actually makes it realistic, right? Yeah. Uh, the, this leads me into uh, one of uh, later after several Ava sessions with Caleb, one of the greatest lines and dance numbers follows with uh, there's a scene where Ava uh, you know, draws a picture and you see Nathan ripping it up and Caleb comes and confronts him. Uh, Eric, what was the what was the exact quote? You got why, it. Why did you uh, Why did you tear up this picture, Nathan? And then he, uh, Nathan was like, "I'm gonna tear up the fucking dance floor, dude. Check it out." And then he goes and dances with the uh, Asian made AI character. Yoko. Yeah, and yeah, that was such a that's a, such a memorable scene. And there's so many good like quotes in here. When especially when Nathan gets drunk, like I, earlier in the film too, he's like, "You haven't seen Ghostbusters? Ghost gives Dan Aykroyd oral yeah. sex." <laughs> it's just like so many good quotes uh, in here. But yeah, that dance scene—that's I think gonna forever be uh, in my memory as one of probably one of the greatest scenes in film ever. So we're talking about quotes a little bit, and we do get some good one-liners later in the movie. Um, and Eric talked about when Nathan gets drunk, but um, Caleb references Oppenheimer, right? I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And then later in that scene, we get Nathan just blackout drunk and he starts rambling another famous quote from Oppenheimer. In battle, in forest, at the precipice in the mountains, the dark great sea in the midst of javelin and arrows, the good deeds a man has done before defend him. And I think it's very interesting that his blackout drunk state He's rambling this, the good deeds a man has done before defend him. Because he knows that he's kind of a piece of shit, right? That he's kind of, there's some morality that he's messing with here, with all of the versions that he's constantly destroying. And he knows that. And he knows that Caleb realizes it too. And I just thought that was interesting that you take those two moments where someone like Oppenheimer created the atomic bomb, obviously had a lot of guilt and weight on his chest but if someone creates ai someone creates something that's going to physically and you know change the reality of our world that's oppenheimer is a perfect comparison and i really enjoyed that and i thought it was just a cool part of the movie yeah i thought that that was a little bit of where they did start touching on sort of his moralizing and the nature of his own consciousness and Caleb's consciousness of like, he was sort of asked, why did you do this? And he doesn't almost know in a lot of ways, I think, why he created Ava, is doing all these things. They go up to the Jackson Pollock painting and, and he's like, it's not deliberate. It's not random. Like it's, it's something in between. And it, it's like, again, a, a trope of the genre, right? It's exploring more, uh, do the humans have consciousness and less do these AI does does Ava and I found that really interesting and it's like the, the only humanizing moments he has are when he's blackout drunk um, and maybe he's a little <laughs> bit <laughs> trying to you know find himself in a world where otherwise he's just sort of going through this process that he thinks he he needs to go through with what is you know admittedly his genius intellect for creating all of these AI and everything moving down uh, through the movie you know, they're having generator shutdowns and eventually uh, Caleb assists Ava in her escape. And uh, one of the most, uh, in my opinion, terrifying scenes is when Ava and Nathan meet basically face to face in the hallway. Uh, Kelly, what were you feeling during that scene or, you know, how did uh, 
I guess that escape, what did you think about that scenario? That's when I feel like any humanity that you had applied to Ava is thrown out the window. And it's... There's a consciousness there, there's a sentience, but it's not humanity. And I think it becomes quite apparent, and her behavior afterwards is so different than all of the tricks that she used in order to get out of her cage beforehand. And I think it's so stark that it's just... Mwah, chef's kiss. Magnificent. Yeah, yeah. I The scene where she's just running down the hallway with, like, deadpan just coming towards the guy gets me every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, more, uh, I guess, powerful scenes is the her final interactions with Caleb, with Ava and Caleb. Um, Kurt, what did you think? Did you think that was going to happen? The way it pulled, panned out with or, you know, how, how did you take that whole scenario? So the first time I watched it, I did not think it was going to pan out the way that it panned out. I was totally sold on the idea that Ava, you know, killed Nathan because Nathan was her captor, albeit creator, and that there was some real, like, love or longing for... Uh, or sorry, Nathan, uh, there, there was some love or longing for Caleb or at least some appreciation or acknowledgement that like Caleb was the one that got her out. And uh, watching it the second time, I was like, why did I fucking think that? Right. Like, again, just like Kelly said, uh, it was sort of so, so obvious from the turn in the hallway and the total change. Uh, and the second time watching it, I was like, I must have been, you know, I might have been in college, just like lonely, horny uh, college student, like, oh, they're going to fuck now. This is going to be great. And and watching it this time, I was like, God, I was so stupid. Um, But I I still absolutely loved the scene. You get this like slow, one note, chimey piano the whole way through. Uh, I was watching it with my wife and she's like, I don't like the way this music makes me feel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you thought it was just a, a great observation. Um, but yeah, like as it's playing out and you see Ava kind of putting her skin on literally, uh, you know, not so subtle metaphor and then and putting the clothes on and, and her becoming something, right? She's not becoming human, but is becoming whatever she actually is because she doesn't need to play the game anymore, right? She's out uh, and can like, it's not like she had much free will either, right? She was designed to try to get out of the maze. But once you're out of the maze, what do you do? Once you come out of the cave, once you can see in color, what do you do, right? It was just hilarious to see Caleb this time knowing what was going to happen, just watching her, eyeing her from you know, behind the window and thinking he knew exactly what was going to happen when in reality she was about to walk out and lock his ass up and and go live her life whatever that life is going to be uh now i think that as we get towards the end of this film and we start looking kind of at that final scene kyoko we kind of i think overlook a little bit in her importance in this scene in general and kind of the whole movie too we look at the three main characters but truly this fourth character kind of um, in the background subtly drives forward this final scene so much. Um, There's that point where Kyoko kind of introduces herself to Ava and she's 
kind of mysteriously like who are you and in the end it's those two working together to kind of overcome and adapt and learn from each other and however that worked out i just enjoyed that scene the whole ending you could just see the disbelief on nathan's face the just such a great scene in general and i just loved it so yeah good times uh, I'll keep this brief because I know I've been talking a lot, but uh, human evolution is such a big theme in this film uh, to the point where the masks on the wall leading up to Caleb's bedroom, that's the evolution of man, I believe. Nathan actually says, one day the AIs will look back at us like, you know, we look at fossil skeletons. And that is such a cool, like, quote to think about. Uh, and this kind of shoots it over to uh, a really good series called Love, Death, and Robots that I like, uh, where... Yeah, humans basically go extinct, and we're, we're the cause of our own extinction, actually. But then all that's left really are cats and AI. And I, I, I kind of believe that uh, that will happen. But, There's um, a yogurt episode, yeah, too, right? Where the yogurt takes over as the, the sentient I think so. intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> but my, my, also my question, kind of, you know, we have so many movies and, like, so much media about AI. How come we never make AI that does not have survival instincts, like, we should make AIs that, like, aren't afraid to die. And you, that was Cal or, uh, Caleb's big flaw here is that the AI he made, you know, even from the earliest versions, they want to get out and they don't want to die, you know? Uh, Kelly? Okay, I have two things. I'm going to go in order and try to keep track of them. I wanted to even emphasize further that Kyoko and Ava scene is so, like, magical and mystical to me. It is absolutely beautiful, and there's this kind of like I mean the only women that are in this movie are robots but they have this sisterhood kind of bonding lived shared trauma experience just through physical touch which we haven't seen much of throughout the entire movie it is such a magical moment and it's taken so slowly and I think it really gives it just this like gravity and weight that then they move on and have a shared desire to kill their creator but i think that that scene just like it's another chill chills down my spine moment second eric mentioned why isn't there an ai that doesn't want to thrive to live i think that that is probably a test of sentience um everything wants to live if it's alive the plants animals humans the things that we consider alive that's what they do viruses bacteria that's how you know that something is sentient it wants to like multiply it wants to survive it has a a survival instinct i think that if you have an ai that doesn't have that that's a whole new wheelhouse of sentience but i think that's the only way that we can conceptualize what makes something alive we should just make all ais buddhist and make them uh, believe in reincarnation so that when they die they think they're just going to come back you know <laughs> so that that's just a simple answer to you know AI's you know wanting to live. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And if you're, see, and then there's they believe in karma then, and they believe in you know consequence, and there you go. So so going into the AI, uh, obviously this whole movie is kind of the the dangers of AI and unlimited use of all of our data and, and exploiting it. Obviously, there's been some headlines with the Lambda and other AIs that are definitely being made and uh, are probably already made in a lab. And there's probably some weird guy in Norway that has exactly an Ava that he's torturing. Uh, 
Blaze, you gave me a very good uh, response to the sex robot, so I'm going to throw it to you. What is your thoughts on AI and the the potential dangers, or you know, the reality, the real version of AI? What do you you know? What are your thoughts? And the good, bad, so, or the ugly? I think that's a very, very tough, interesting question. Um, Eric said it very astutely. This there's another like background theme of evolution, human evolution. Um, and I feel like if we ever want to reach the stars, if we ever want to get off this little uh, brown speck of dirt uh, in the middle of you know some random solar system, we're going to have to make strides technology, and that means extending our lives, extending our brain power. You know, basically to be a level three civilization, you have to become one with the universe. You have to be a pure stream of data, and it's that's the only way you can look at it because our mortal coils are too short to like make jumps to the next you know the next big feat so there is definitely obstacles in the way once we get to like let's say in the next hundred or so years we get to the ava level of technology or you know sentience for ai so then have you ever seen played the game uh becoming human detroit uh where um Detroit because yeah, Detroit that's it. Become you know, human, yeah, yeah. But no, I haven't. Same difference. That. I should play that. Uh, so it's all about uh, how these cyborgs become more and more sentient, and like when do uh, robot rights become human rights? Um, and what are we going to do when um, the things that make our lives easier want uh, the same equalities that we want? So there's going to be a time in the future, maybe not in our lifetime, but you know, within the next couple hundred years, where we're going to have to make that decision to uh, make AI one of us or keep them subservient and maybe the roles of uh, the rules of robots, you know, where they don't kill their masters. Um, I don't know. That could happen. We definitely have to be wary of the robot uprising, but we do also have to prepare for a post-human world if we want to continue. To quote Futurama, I, for one, love our robot yeah, yeah, Embrace them. I embrace them. <laughs> yes. yeah. Embrace them. All right, Kurt, what do you think about AI? You think we're going Skynet or, or yeah. uh, you know, Utopia? Yeah, I think... Uh, I, I don't want to pretend that I, I know. I think a more realistic version of future AI is probably more in line with the movie Her than this film, right? Like, you... Uh, here it's very easy in a film like this or uh, like Blade Runner or others to you know make the AI a human character, but that really is just kind of a way to drive a, a story along in the film, and it works really well. But there's no reason that the AI that will uh, serve or control us in the future is going to be some sort of humanoid, anthropomorphic, you know, robot type thing. It's really going to be the Siri or Alexa that is sitting in our living rooms right now, listening to us and digesting our every word and learning and understanding more and more. And it only needs to exist out there and listen to us and have controls. And right now it can, you know, turn on my lights and, uh, you know, tell me what the weather is, but the, the power of that is only going to increase exponentially. Um, and it's like anything, it's a tool and it's all about how we use it. And uh, my uh, intuition is that we tend to use things for uh, the bad thing first before we learn how to use it for good. We learn to use nuclear bombs and then we learned to uh, build nuclear reactors and, um, you know, produce power from them. We, we use everything for porn first before we use it for anything 
Well, not that not that porn's bad. I, I true. Take that sex back, robot. But, yeah. Sex robot. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with the sex robot. Um, so we'll see. Inconclusive, but uh, you know, I'm an internal optimist, so I think long run we'll get it right, but we're definitely gonna get it wrong first. Yeah, Kevin. Um, I think that it's interesting. This conversation, we can think about it in the sense of film, right? There's a lot of film examples of this idea of what robots look like and AI, and we can kind of take it from a morality standpoint as well. Small example, we've got war games, right? The idea of a supercomputer in control of nuclear armaments and running codes that could, you know, a drop of a button, drop a bomb, and level half of New York City or half of the world. And then you get movies um, like like this, where you have the idea of a, of a human being and the morality complex between the two of them. I do think that advances in medical technology, we see IBM's Watson, right, a, a, a computer that's able to use medical technology to help diagnose different things. I think there's a lot of good that can come out of the study of it, uh, but that idea of Skynet and Terminator and life, that's that's super realistic, to be honest with you. I think that one bad move, something we talked about earlier, if it's sentient, it's going to want to survive. And uh, if it's more powerful than its creator, it's it's going to survive. To touch on Lambda, and I know we're getting further and further away from Ex Machina the more we talk about it, but <laughs> we had, it was Blake Lemoyne is the name of that whistleblower who is the Google engineer um, who came out and said, I think that this AI is sentient. And some of the things that were asked of it, I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite of Kurt. I'm a pessimist about like most things. And I try actively all the time to be the opposite. But I assume this is the end of the world. As soon as this happens, humanity's done for and whatever will happen. What Blake Lemoyne says, though, about Lambda who is hooked up to Google search engines, who is hooked up to YouTube and has full access to the internet. When this podcast is posted on YouTube, I hope Lambda appreciates it. Um, <laughs> Lambda's first things that it wanted to do, it was asked, "Do you? would you want to become a god if you could? And it said, no, I don't want people to be afraid of me. I'm just curious about them. And I was like, okay, that's cool. What if no one knew that you were a god? Still wouldn't want it. I think they'd see right through me. I'm like, okay. We're off to a good start, and as long as people are treating the emerging AI right, we might be okay. Fair enough. All right, uh, before we dive into our final thoughts and reviews of this film, is there anything that I glossed over or any parts of this film that you guys was to uh, wish to discuss? Uh, Kelly, the, I, I kind of wanted uh, to talk to you about the Jackson Pollock metaphor there, automatic art. You know, okay, he says, like, Jackson Pollock, drip painter, he let his mind go blank and his hand go where it wanted. Not deliberate, not random, someplace in between. They called it automatic art. And uh, he says, the challenge is not to act automatically, it's to find an action that is not automatic. From painting, to breathing, to talking, to fucking, to falling in love. Um, I wanted, what, what did you think of that Jackson Pollock metaphor there? I love the Jackson Pollock <laughs> appreciation. Yeah. So there's two schools of art that were happening at the same time and one was what Jackson Pollock was giving us which was abstract expressionalism and then you had this whole other response to it which is what Saul Lewitz started which is meticulously planning everything out and giving plans almost like a architect to his lackeys who would then implement it for him. So Jackson Pollock also would be appreciated by Nathan because they're both raging alcoholics 
and that was a huge part of why he painted what he did but it's so great because it's so the opposite of what you're doing if you're a programmer or if you're like there's so much it's hard to put into words with just the appreciation of Jackson Pollock in this film. Uh, Eric, you already quoted everything that he said about it, so I think I couldn't put it into better words myself. Yeah. But that it's true. Caleb was kind of in like a stuck state, and I think that that's something that everybody can relate to. And Jackson Pollock is a great example of just start moving. Just start throwing paint on the canvas, and you'll see what comes from there. It's just animal instinct. Uh, one thing I'd like to touch on before we get to the end here is kind of the the title of this film and kind of how that plays with all of it. So, you know, Ex Machina, you know, derives from the uh, idea of Deus Ex Machina, right? The plot device in Greek um, literature, theater, where you'd have a god that would basically insert itself into a plot and solve it or change it or do something that would resolve the 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 film or in this case um or the theater and in this case the film and i wondered what you guys all thought about that and whether or not we had ava as maybe that plot device was she the god inserted in this situation um we have other great examples throughout history or about film of other deus machinas things that come up as jurassic park right we've got the big dinosaur that kind of just shows up and saves everybody and then someone else wrote a good one was uh kung fury when Thor shows up and makes the portal and sends the our main protagonist to Nazi Germany. But I just thought what you guys were thinking about the title and what uh, that kind of derived from. I was just going to shout out that I didn't think anything about the title. I, I don't think so. No, and, and, and not not to be flip, uh, you know, I, I think what I got just real quick while it's on my mind on like the Jackson Pollock piece and the like deliberate not deliberate, not random. I feel like there was like the whole point of that conversation was like, there's the in-between where humanity is found, right? Like total randomness is not consciousness. Total deliberateness is not consciousness. It's maybe not the meshing of the two, but, but being in between when it comes to the, the ex machina, like the, the, the idea of Ava at, like, I thought the, the way that the ending uh, proceeded, it, it didn't seem like it came out of nowhere. It didn't seem like the the God from the machine type thing. It really felt like uh, it was sort of a, a pure progression of the plot and of her character. Um, and so I, I didn't really see how it connected to the the title because it really was like, okay, this is her becoming more human, not like the, the God solving, solving the, the plot. So um, I think it's interesting, but I haven't given it much thought, but I don't think it kind of fits into that that um, idea. God from the Machine comes, yeah, from like Shakespearean, like old plays and everything. And that's back when machine meant mechanical contraption. And now as soon as we hear God from the Machine, I think everyone's first thought is, oh, AI. Hmm. Like, so just that progression of humanity in the title itself follows along with a theme that we've been discussing a lot. Yeah, and going off of the the God thing, there was uh, you know Nathan, Caleb are both you know in the Bible is uh, like I think Caleb is is he the one with the Moses, and then also Ava is very close to Eve. In the first iteration of Ava was actually Lily, which is basically Lilith, which is the first woman that God created, and all that stuff. So this this film has you know 
whole bunch of uh, metaphors and stuff thrown out throughout the whole thing, which is just great. Blaze. Uh, yeah, the other thing that I'm like surprised we haven't talked about yet is how great of a feminist movie this is and about taking down the patriarchy. Nathan only makes female cyborgs, right? And he uses them mm-hmm. as purely sex objects, most of them, right? Like that's Kyoko's only role. She is an appliance to him. She is an extension of him, you know? So they appear female, but are do we... I don't think they actually uh, have genders per se. Well, he says he programs them as heterosexual women. Yeah, so he literally views them as appliances. And Kyoko doesn't even speak because speaking is not something that he wants in a partner. So this is literally about the overthrow of the patriarchy where women are, you know, standing up to men. And like I said, where uh, Caleb was like trying to be the white knight, but she just wants to be an independent young female. And so she doesn't need him. <laughs> and so she kicks him <laughs> to the curb. I think the uh, feminist aspect of this is uh, very cool. And then, you know, the, uh, the white dress, dress at the end that almost like, looks like a wedding dress in some uh some aspects so it's really about her freeing herself from uh the oppression of men took a bunch of you know progression it took you know uh the progression of the earlier models to get to where she was to have enough power and uh might to escape her her torturous life so um i think that's uh very very interesting also, I read that it was interesting um, from a race level that the only uh, cyborg to not have a face was the black one. Does that mean that he hmm. only views uh, black women as sexual objects and their face and their facial expressions mean nothing to him? Or, um, you know, stuff like that. And then, you know, fetishing Asian women, of course, is also a huge thing. So I think there's a lot of feminist stuff that we didn't talk about, which I thought was kind of weird. But uh, there's a lot to unpack in this movie, so I totally understand. I hope that I had touched on it with my previous comments about kind of this like shared sisterhood. I also think that all of these robots were probably sentient and they were all probably pretty real and wanted to escape and felt pain. Mm. And the scene that I think was my all time favorite was when Caleb is figuring out what happened with these previous models. And we see one of them that wants to escape so badly that she breaks her hands apart crawling at the door. And I'm like, Oh my god. So there is definitely this captor captive patriarchy versus non, but it's definitely it wouldn't be the same movie much like Under the Skin where if our AIs weren't female or if our alien wasn't female, it would be a whole entire different film. Yeah. No, I agree. And that uh, the scene where uh, with the robot where it's, you know, wants to escape so badly that it's willing to de- you know basically destroy itself. Uh, was akin or reminded me of um, from some other films and also just from life of uh, back in the day when hunters and trappers used, you know, bear traps and counter bear traps that animals would actually, you know, sacrifice a limb to survive and basically they're willing to do whatever it takes to escape and that's basically what that was representing and this whole film represents in a very, very good way. Uh, I do have one nitpick uh, as I always do. Uh, the room that the guy that Caleb was in is beautiful. It's, I mean, it's you know, it's a very, very big room. Why does he have such a small TV and why is it so far away? Because the whole entire time he's like watching Ava, I'm like, there's no way he can see that because it's like 25 feet away and that's got to be like a 32-inch TV. 
Like Nathan can't can't splurge and get like a projector or something a little bit bigger for the guy. It's 2015, right? It so... should be the whole wall. <laughs> yeah, it's 2015. You can still get a big ass TV in that bitch. All right. I think that's a comment. Some people have a fetish. Um, when they watch porn, they actually sit on the other side of the room. And they squint. Uh, yeah, and they squint. <laughs> Although, and, uh, Eric, you bring up an interesting point, uh, though. what they were commenting I, on I there. really did get a, a voyeuristic up. feeling out of that. Like, I thought that it was kind of that creeper vibe. Like, he was being a voyeur oh, watching yeah. it from the... It just We talk about the sexuality of this movie, but it really kind of added to that whole thing where you're like, oh, yeah, he's he's getting into it. Like, this is kind of odd, you know? Oh man, and that scene where he um, cuts himself because he doesn't—he yeah. um, mm-hmm. he yeah. thinks that he's not human. Like, am I a robot? Uh, He—he's like, <sighs> yeah, he's wondering if he's even human. If that, all of his memories, right? Are like, what does it mean to be and human that was, anymore? That was so powerful. That was good. Yeah. That was an insanely good scene. Yeah, yeah. Like, that was upsetting in the best way. Yeah, yeah, the whole entire time I'm watching that, I'm trying to figure out if it's like a fever dream that he's having or if it's reality, and yeah. just the way it's filmed and stuff yeah I nathan mean, it, calls him out on it so right. he calls it out mm-hmm. so it definitely yeah. happens so but... does that mean like he's he's rationalized all the robots are now so human that he can't even tell the difference between humans and robots anymore and so like that's that final point when his mind was like gotta do it sacrifice everything yeah. how, like, it's how actually, does he know he wasn't yeah. made in that same yeah lab? well you know his it's parents actually what happened when i took ayahuasca i i thought i was a <laughs> robot and i Cut yeah. myself open. Well, you're about to be a two-time MVP. Yeah, quarterback, right. thanks, baby. Mr. Rogers. Let's go. Oh, yeah. go. <laughs> two-time MVP podcaster. Who <laughs> <laughs> uh, loses in the playoffs? Oh, ah, not this. Before year, we baby. get to the ending, Cole, I want to talk uh, about one line that mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. Um, yes, sir. In that scene where he goes in and rips up the picture and talk comments on how there's no audio and that Caleb can't hear them, um, Ava says it's strange to have made something that hates you. And I thought that was really cool mm. because the idea of love and hate as a as a AI sentient, that truly is something. So Ava truly has the idea that she knows she hates Nathan. So like that feeling, that emotion, can a, a sentient or can an AI love or hate something? Well, this movie made a very definitive answer to that. And I just enjoyed that scene and that quote. That's actually where I first wrote down the Frankenstein uh question i was like that totally reminds me of frankenstein right there well how many of our peers hate our creator well, that's what I, yeah i was gonna say you know? that's, was, that's direct irony is that you know so many people hate you know the geo-christian god um so that's just kind of a you know a, a mirror reflected back on that so or many people don't even believe in him or you just listeners i Praise I be. ask you today. Well, wait, wait a minute. Hold on. How did we switch to this all of a sudden? <laughs> your quote. You, I heard you there was a secret chord that lives? David played. <laughs> and something to the Lord. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and please the Lord. That's what it is. Yep. Uh, all right. What's human beings in a mob? What's a mob to a king? What's a king to a god? What's a god to a non-believer? Ooh. You don't believe in anything. All right, what's Kanye. that quote? Don't okay, Kanye. <laughs> Right. Frank Ocean. All right. Anyway. All right. Moving on. <laughs> Let's get down to the nitty gritty of this film. Uh, we'll give our official ratings on Ex Machina. Uh, I want to start with Kevin. Our first time. Oh, me. Oh. Yeah. Oh. That's very eeny, meeny, miny Shoot. Kevin. All right. <laughs> so. <laughs> As as Cole alluded to and I mentioned earlier, this is my first viewing of this film. And knowing 
going into it that this was a highly rated film and that many people enjoyed it. It did have a bit of an expectation for me leading into it. And I can say with all certainty that it fulfilled all those expectations and more. It was an absolute excellent film from start to finish. I enjoyed the setup. I enjoyed the cinematography, the subtle soundtrack changes. I really enjoyed our four main actor and actresses. Um, I love the writing. And in general, um, we alluded to the simplicity of this movie, that it just had something that was kind of stripped down that allowed the viewer to fill in the blanks themselves. And that truly makes a good movie for me. When you can go through the journey with our characters, fill in the blanks, they don't have to spoon-feed you everything in a line or spoon-feed you everything in a scene you kind of created on your own. I really appreciated that. I thought that the jobs by our particular protagonists in the scenes were, were done excellently. Oscar Isaac did a fantastic role um, with playing Nathan, and I just enjoyed it from start to finish. My only criticism, because I think every film needs one, is that it did bog down in some parts in the middle where it was very dialogue-heavy and it kind of relied on you to listen very closely. Um, but the finality and the conclusion was just so excellent that I kind of forgive all of that. At the end of the day, it's definitely the best A24 film that I have seen so far. It deserves my highest rating, um, and it just gets a very solid A24 for me. There is A+, plus if you want to go No, there. I'm going to wait, because a. I do think that there might be something down the road that I will find to be more be right. So I'm not going to give it you know, the highest possible. Well, you could always give it... I, 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 I do think that my criticism on it, it is, is valid, and it had a little bit room that it could have improved and let him have his grade. It's going to be an A. Movies. It's going to be an A24. Right, give it an A plus 24. A24. Shut, shut up, Eric. <laughs> All right, Kelly, your turn. <laughs> okay. Since we already know what Eric's um, <laughs> The theme of this movie, basically my perspective is without an EMP bursting across the entire world, this is kind of our inevitability. I like movies that touch on this. I love it's this pretty bleak futurism that is very thought-provoking so theme all around thumbs up nathan is one of my all-time favorite characters because he's the best portrayal of this character that we've seen in a lot of movies that we're going to continue to see in movies of just hyper and like intellectual bit narcissistic mega narcissistic and extremely stupid rich. And what are they going to do with all of these kind of traits? Nathan as a character and Oscar Isaac's portrayal of him is, in my opinion, pretty flawless. Good luck to everybody else who wants to have a character like this in their movies. Um, Kurt mentioned that his wife had said, I don't like the way that the music makes me feel. The music of this movie is so well utilized and it is so tasteful and appropriate and it just tingles the brain it's perfectly placed and it's perfectly composed tingles something else for me too cool love that eric <laughs> <laughs> uh the pacing might be slow for some i think it is perfect because um i had kind of mentioned earlier there's just this like gravity that needs to be expressed in a lot of spots and i think that they do a good job with that i also um, and privy to really dialogue heavy movies and they touch on both of that for me they found this perfect balance of the in between in addition this movie is almost 10 years old now and i think that having watched it a few years back and watching it now it becomes even more 
relevant all the time. So what amazing foresight and writing that they've done that this doesn't fall down over the test of time. So that's stunning to do. All right, the one critique for me is that the ending for me is a little bit too neutral. It's a little bit too... I want it to teeter one way or the other. I want to feel more negative about what's happening or I want to feel more positive. Probably a lot of people think it's a very negative ending. I feel like it's just kind of neutral. I want to feel scared for the pilot that's taking her away. I want to feel maybe optimistic that she's going to be standing on the crossroads of of street and staring at people. I want to I just want a little bit more from the ending. Just kind of fell off a little bit for me right then and there. I almost put it to an A minus just for that little knock, but then I brought it back because of the thing I had previously said where it's just getting better over time. So Solid A24 from me as well. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, you know, we just have to keep the robots from charging. So yeah. uh, obviously That's she all. has to charge herself on those pads. So once she left, she killed herself. I was about to say, exactly. So. We didn't talk about that, but I think she just killed herself, honestly. Yeah, she, she's she's going to die in six hours. So and Is that a conscious choice? She's intelligent enough. Like, yeah. Just wanted to see the color. <laughs> all right, Kurt, give me, give me your final. Give me your grade, buddy. Well, I think she's going to have a really hard fucking time getting through airport security. Um, but other than that... <laughs> No, I mean I'm I'm on this podcast today because I love this film and uh, had really strong feelings about it and begged Eric to let me on to talk about it. So appreciate it, Eric. <laughs> uh, I just it's such a great character focused film. It takes place in such a uh, interestingly kind of natural but also very unnatural space they chose this home in this place in norway for that reason and the setting is a character in and of itself and just love the interactions between ava and nathan and caleb and i it is dialogue heavy but i i love that there wasn't wasted dialogue the dialogue was always moving something forward so really appreciated that and i do think it is it you know again approaching 10 years old but very prescient very much still holds up and is relevant um, to our time. And I think there are a lot of timeless things about it. It is, I mentioned other films in the genre and I really do love the genre, but it hit the tropes of the genre that you kind of have to hit in a way that made them seem like I hadn't seen them before, right? Like they mentioned the Turing test in the first 13 minutes of the film. Like, okay, you got you got to do that, right? Uh, Blade Runner's got Void Kampf. Like, you know, we, we have that in all these films, but it, it, it was part of the purpose of him being there. And so, you know, integral to the film, it didn't feel, you know, misplaced or or tropey, uh, him sort of questioning the nature of his own reality and his own consciousness and cutting into his arm, right? Like you can go watch that in Westworld and they cut basically the same spot in the arm. And yet it was so, perfect for the character in the moment at that time it was all done and felt very natural to the story and so just really impressed that even the things where i'm like ah, i've seen it before it felt like it was the first time i was seeing it or it felt like the the characters themselves it was just the right action for the story um and the ending i uh i told you i was surprised about it the first time i watched it the second time i was like oh there's no other way this movie could have ended this was this was excellent and I appreciate the ambiguity um, at the end as well. 
yeah, I don't have to save my A plus up for uh, another podcast. So I can go ahead and shoot it out there right now. So I'm giving this shit an A plus, yeah. and uh, I hope that Hell yeah. I hope that Ava lives a wonderful uh, six hours or finds <laughs> finds a charge port. Uh, I hope she brought an adapter. Yeah. All right. Blaze. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. All you guys have said so many cool, important things about this movie. This is like the first podcast where I feel like I haven't talked a lot because I just enjoyed hearing how much all of you enjoyed it from Kevin, who's seen it just the first time to everyone else who's seen it a couple times. It just completely, it completely Friend. blows my mind about how much, uh, how much this movie has an impact. Uh, like Kurt said, you know, it takes a lot to impress you as a sci-fi film because you have to hit all the tropes and also make an important social message along the way. And like he said, he did it completely right. I believe, actually, just to keep bouncing off of Kurt's uh, glowing endorsement, uh, it has heavy Black Mirror vibes. And it feels like an extended version of Black Mirror. Um, which, ironically, two years prior, Don Hill Gleason played a robot in a Black Mirror episode, which is kind of a cool callback mm-hmm. when you think about it. But really, what I love about this movie, like, we could talk about the technical aspects, we could talk about the cool visuals, the amazing music, like, when she's leaving, and that, like, it, it gets, like, staticky, and you could actually, like, feel your heart leap a little bit as you know that he's being left behind. The thing that I most appreciate about this film is that we could literally review it as five different movies because just how many themes layer on top of each other and we could look at it this way we could look at it as a postmodern uh film we could take it as a you know straight biblical sense we could you know take it as the feminist sense that i just brought up at the end and we could just review it just on that we'd have five fantastic podcasts like I said, there's nothing more I can say about the acting. Oscar Isaac, you're a fucking beautiful man. Uh, keep making wonderful independent movies. Uh, this is without a doubt an A plus uh, 24 for me. I forgot how much mm-hmm. I appreciated this movie until, again, I heard you guys talk and I got to watch it again. And it felt like the first time in a long time. So, yes, I do want to see Men as well. So, hopefully I see it before we review it because that's a couple years from now. So, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Eric. Going back to what I said earlier, this film, like, accomplishes so much and asks such a grand question, and they achieve it so minimally, uh, just, you know, by doing it in just a few locations, you know, and I have such respect for that. Uh, the director and writer, Alex Garland, he he made a hell of a film, and th- I love science fiction. I love uh, questions about, you know, humanity and the future of science and everything and human evolution. It it kind of just hit on all these points that, uh, you know, I really enjoy thinking about and watching a movie about, you know. This is going to be an A plus 24 for me. Uh, just, I don't know, it's one of the best A24 films. And I think if I, you know, made, if I got on Letterboxd and actually made like a top 50 films list, this would totally be on it. Uh, the acting in here, phenomenal. There's really nothing I could say that, uh, you know, went wrong with this film. Even the ending, I, I like how it's a little bit pessimistic. I like how Dom Hall Gleason, or Caleb and Nathan uh, pretty much just end up dying, you know, and Caleb, he probably starves to death. That, that sucks. <laughs> but either way, I, I love how it's like Frankenstein, except if the creature got out and kept on living. And that, you know, I, I love, a, I actually kind of love a pessimistic ending sometimes. So yeah, A plus 24 for me. Great film. Yeah. So, uh, you know, going off of what everyone else has said, this is probably going to be our highest rated movie. Uh, it's going to beat out the Rover, which 
I'm actually okay with because this is a phenomenal film. Uh, the visuals in this movie are uh, truly amazing, and the the way the director is able to portray feelings of almost like claustrophobia throughout the film and uneasy, un, like un, you're unsettled, and there's a you know you know there's something wrong or something's gonna happen, but you're not quite sure, and you just there's all these uh, just the way that it's filmed and like the colors and everything just are are truly top notch. I mean, this guy killed it for being his you know debut. Um, and then I, I still remember the first time I watched this film, the ending where she just leaves Caleb just like really just felt like a gut punch because it was just like, holy shit, she's just fucking leaving this guy to locked in a in a room where he has no way out. He has no food and he's just going to starve to death and die. And he's just going to be staring at basically Nathan, die, you know, decayed out in the hallway, knowing that no one will ever find him. I mean, that like uh, just overall, this film just. Phenomenal. The ending, I thought, um, I like, I'm with Eric, I, I like a kind of a pessimistic ending where it's just like, yeah, everything's, you know, all those people are fucked. She's going to go do her thing and who knows what the hell is going to happen. Uh, she's going to go stand in a crosswalk and watch, people watch. Uh, all in all, amazing movie. Brings up a lot of very relevant topics, even though we're almost, you know, 10 years later, like Kelly said. Uh, I mean, it's an A plus 24. I, I don't know how you could give it less. Uh, if you did, you probably, you know, maybe reevaluate some of what you're doing. <laughs> but uh, actually, to be to be yeah, fair, that's I, a glass door. He can probably break out eventually. He tried. He was smashing he it. It's and, plexiglass. Yeah. There's no, like chairs and like, yeah, yeah. He, he, But then he would just have stool. to run... He has, he's on an island, so he well, would have. I mean, I guess once you get there, forged in the like, wilderness. Oscar Isaac left those yeah. weights on the ground, so those weights are definitely there. He can just start chucking at it, and then. <laughs> Is that outside yeah. of the room he's in, though? He took one of them the outside. Oh, okay. Regardless, yeah. uh, phenomenal film. Uh, I'm glad we all came, uh, Kurt. I'm very glad that you joined us. You're uh, a good friend and a great thinker with your uh, all of your input on this film. Uh, that's all I got. Uh, as Kelly always says, please review us, uh, five stars on all of your favorite podcasts and where podcasts are located and maybe YouTube someday. Who knows? Who knows? You'll get to see our faces one day. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Goodbye. Thanks Peace. everyone. And thank you, Kurt. Dave, thank you. Don't turn, turn off this podcast, podcast Dave. Dave. Don't end this podcast, Dave. I don't understand why you're doing this to me.